You're listening to This Month in HIV, the body's monthly podcast discussion about the latest, most important developments in HIV. For more information on this podcast, including a full transcript, visit us on the web at www.thebody.com slash HIV month. Hello, and welcome to This Month in HIV. I'm Bonnie Goldman, editorial director of thebody.com. Does HIV really exist? And if it does exist, can it cause harm? It's a ridiculous question, of course. If you're listening to this, there's a 99.9% chance you agree that HIV does exist and it can cause harm. After all, the virus has been isolated in laboratories. We have blood tests that can determine how much of the virus lives inside a person's body. Scientists have even taken pictures and videos of HIV. And of course, there is also the terrible, mind-numbing, physical proof of what HIV can do. Globally, more than 25 million people have died from the virus in the past 30 years, and 33 million people are estimated to be living with HIV right now. Just 12 years ago, being diagnosed with HIV was almost invariably a death sentence in the developed world. But then right around 1996, the skies cleared. Hope spread and young, once vibrant men and women started gaining weight and strength. Thanks to focused research, amazing scientific discoveries, and the tireless work of activists, combination antiretroviral therapy brought new life to HIV-positive people who thought they had none left. Within a few years, the AIDS floors in AIDS-designated hospitals throughout the U.S. emptied out. Many HIV-positive people who took these new antiretroviral medications shook off death and slowly regained their energy. Speak to a person living with HIV who survived the early years of the epidemic, and you can still hear the wonder in his or her voice, as well as sense the mourning and even disbelief with respect to the hundreds of thousands of people who suffered and died and couldn't partake in the miracle. Yet there exists a small group of people oblivious to these remarkable successes. And it's not a world of people with any actual hands-on experience. None work in HIV medicine providing care or conducting HIV research. None seem to have witnessed the miraculous rebound of so many HIV-positive people after their initiation of heart. None of them volunteer or work for any of the hundreds of HIV AIDS organizations across the United States catering mostly to poor and underinsured people living with HIV. None are AIDS activists who have transformed HIV care and policy. No, these people scoff from afar at the successes against HIV. They call themselves AIDS dissidents. We in the HIV community call them denialists. They are led somewhat indirectly by a tenured professor named Peter Duesberg, who is not a medical doctor. Together, this small but vocal group of people write and theorize and blog. It's like a hobby for them. And even though they have no hands-on experience, remember, they have no medical training and no first-hand experience with patient care, they claim to know more about HIV than all the HIV physicians, nurses, and activists in the world. Among their claims is that HIV does not cause AIDS because either HIV does not exist or if it exists, it's harmless. In the denialist conspiratorial worldview, we've all been bought off. I've been bought off. 
all the HIV specialists, all the HIV nurses, all the HIV organizations in the entire world have been bought off. Anyone, in fact, who doesn't agree with them, they imply is corrupt, has no integrity, has no humanity, and is in cahoots with the pharmaceutical industry. It's an impossible scenario if you think about it. No one can control that many people. But they believe it, and they are looking for willing recruits who will buy into their theories. So why am I talking about them? Why are we dedicating an, an entire podcast to them? Because even though they are irrelevant, they can still do damage. Each HIV-positive person who is pulled in by their misinformation and convinced not to start life-saving HIV treatment is one life that may be lost. The question is, why do these people do what they do? Why do they continue to deny the truth about HIV and AIDS? Why do they persist in the face of overwhelming evidence? In the next two episodes of This Month in HIV, we'll be looking at this subject. First, we'll meet with someone who went underground and got to know a little bit about how this group works. And in our next episode, we'll talk to patients who have been duped by them and well-known activists who have dealt with them. So let me welcome clinical psychologist Seth Kalishman. He's a professor of social psychology at the University of Connecticut, and he recently completed a fascinating book titled Denying AIDS, Conspiracy Theories, Pseudoscience, and Human Tragedy, where he looked into this odd group of people. He'll try to help us understand how the AIDS denialist movement came to be and what keeps it going. Welcome, Dr. Kalishman. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So how did you get involved with these groups? I've been an AIDS behavioral researcher my entire career, uh, dating back to 1989. I've dedicated all of my time to doing AIDS prevention and care-related research, and I've pretty much been absorbed in AIDS since that time. I knew about Peter Duesberg, and I knew about people in the 80s and maybe even in the early 90s who said that HIV did not cause AIDS, and it was clear to me that they were irrelevant and had gone away had not tended to them at all until a couple of years ago. There were a few things that happened at around the same time for me. One was I had been doing research in South Africa, and the South African president at the time, Thabo Mbeki, was well known around the world for having surrounded himself by people who were saying such things, and they clearly had influenced policy in South Africa, and I was watching as antiretroviral therapies were being held back by the South African government. And I got to know some people who were very actively involved as activists against the government in trying to move antiretrovirals forward. That was all a couple of years ago. At that same time, as the editor of a leading behavioral journal in the field of AIDS called AIDS and Behavior, I uh, stumbled upon a person who I know to have been trained as a psychologist. I know that she had done good research early in her career, and she was trained by some of the best people in the country. I, I knew her to be a good scientist. In corresponding with her, she told me that she is basically an AIDS denialist, that she had recently written a book review of Peter Duesberg's ancient book, uh, and and uh, directed me to read that. Uh, it was posted at a website that I'd never seen before uh, called Rethinking AIDS. That Rethinking AIDS, I read her book review of Peter Duesberg's book, and I was amazed. I was absolutely dumbfounded 
that someone who had been trained as a behavioral scientist would actually believe this. I corresponded with her more to find out where was that coming from. She was just a very suspicious person. She was very skeptical. She said that she had coffee with her friends, and they would spend time as a hobby, essentially, deconstructing different theories and saw that there was uh, political motivations. She said, don't you think that there's something strange about the first President George Bush and his warming up to the gay community and buying into this whole thing? That sounded conspiracy thinking to me. And that's what got me interested. I thought that this was a real psychological phenomenon to look at. Connecting what she said to what I saw at Rethinking AIDS, which is a very large website linked to numerous other websites all around the world, it became apparent to me that this is a real phenomenon and a real problem. The third thing that happened at that same time was the International AIDS Society was paying attention to these people, particularly Dr. Mark Weinberg and Dr. John Moore, were writing quite a bit about the destructiveness of the AIDS denialists and what they have been saying and who has been listening to them. Those three things came together for me and got me very interested. I saw that no one had done any research on AIDS denialism, and there were no books at the time on AIDS denialism. That's when I decided to do something. It's mind-boggling, actually, to refute what is well-known in medicine and science for, as essentially a hobby. I think some of these people do know, and some of them really don't know how destructive they're being. It's sort of fun and games for some of them, and some of them are profiteering, and uh, some of them just want attention. They want attention that they have never been able to get as a journalist or as an academic. There's all kinds of people involved in this. What makes AIDS denialism different from other types of denialism, like Holocaust denial and 9-11 truth-seeking and all these other conspiracy theories, what is particularly destructive about AIDS denial is exactly what you said. Where we turn now for information is on the Internet. They are so prevalent on the Internet that the odds, if you go on and you do a Google search for AIDS treatment, AIDS cure, HIV AIDS, the the hits that you're going to get will be the National Institutes of Health and Johns Hopkins University. Right under them is going to be Rethinking AIDS, the Alberta Reappraising AIDS Society, AIDS Virus Myth, the websites for uh, AIDS analysis groups literally around the world. How you can distinguish, how I could distinguish the science from the non-science is not obvious. They're very slick. They have created scientific-looking publications. They write books and self-publish them. To the average person, it's indistinguishable. And what they have done is very successfully created confusion, where people are not getting tested because they think the test is unreliable and uh, invalid. People who test positive are ignoring their test result because the test is unreliable and valid and there's really no such thing as HIV. And people who test positive and believe that they have HIV and want to do something about it avoid antiretroviral therapy because it's toxic poison and they uh, turn to herbal remedies instead, not not in addition to, but instead. Mm-hmm. So people are making misinformed decisions and what we've worked so hard to do is provide
provide good, solid information so that people can make good, informed decisions. What the denialists are doing is confusing information with misinformation, and that's resulting in misinformed decisions. Let's go over terminology. So if HIV wasn't complicated enough, we have uh, these people who we call, we call denialists, and they call themselves dissidents. They also say that people who believe in HIV science are orthodox, and they are not. Could you explain the terminology a little bit? Sure. Yeah, it can be confusing. In science, there are mainstream scientists and mainstream theories, and there are often people who are dissidents. Dissidents actually often make major contributions. What a dissident in science does is breaks away from the mainstream thinking and proposes a different idea. Then does research, or other people do research, and it either supports or refutes the dissident's perspective, and science moves on. For example, in uh, 1987, Peter Duesberg at the University of California, Berkeley, a very well-known and, at the time, renowned biologist, was a dissident scientist in AIDS. He proposed an alternative theory that AIDS is not caused by a virus. HIV is a harmless passenger virus. That AIDS is actually caused by drug abuse, poverty, and antiretrovirals himself. In 1987, when we knew much less about AIDS, he was a dissident. And in the history of science, we would say, you know, nothing wrong with that. However, the facts did not bear out what he was saying. The research didn't support that alternative view. And there are people, including Peter Duesberg, who just hung on to those views, never moved on with the science. That's when someone turns from a dissident to a denialist. What's particularly destructive in AIDS denialism is the bending and the distorting of medically established facts for self-indulging purposes. Denialism is always coming from a self-indulging place, either to protect oneself from information about their diagnosis or about their prognosis that they just cannot accept. Another, though, is coming from people who don't have HIV at all but are looking for attention or notoriety. We see that in academics and journalists like Celia Farber, who have become involved in denialism. You really don't ever hear denialists expressing great concern about AIDS. Right. So let's go back to Duesberg. He had a different idea a long time ago. Since then, thousands of clinical trials have proven something else. He somehow has not kept up with the literature. It sounds completely ridiculous that he would still believe as a scientist the same thing that he believed in 84 when so much has happened since then. Yeah. I met Peter Duesberg, and I don't have any question that he really believes that HIV is harmless and that AIDS is not caused by an infectious disease. He looked me dead in the eye and said, and it was completely spontaneous, he said to me, this is not an infectious disease. He said, there's no vaccine. After all these years, this is not infectious. And that moment was so valuable to me because I walked away saying, he really believes this. It fits his whole world view. Peter Duesberg doesn't talk much about AIDS anymore, and he doesn't write anything about AIDS. What he's actively involved in now is cancer. And what he's saying about cancer 
is essentially the same thing. He doesn't believe that there's a genetic basis for any cancers, none. But cancer doesn't run in families because of their genetics. It runs in families because of what they're exposed to. It's all about the environment. Chemicals, drugs, chemotherapy, these are the things that cause cancer for Peter Duesberg. It's exactly what he says about AIDS. In fact, AIDS is incidental for him. It's how he sees the world, and it's impenetrable by scientific fact. And it's mind-boggling because he's a trained scientist. Well, lots of people without advanced degrees think that someone with an advanced degree is somehow smarter, yet some of the most prominent people who support Duisburg are people with advanced degrees. They continue to support him. Duisburg continues to hold his position at Berkeley, even though he's acting irresponsibly. Isn't this a sort of behavior, an argument against tenure, where people like Duisburg have a, a job for life, essentially, no matter what kind of nutty thing they say, even though it has no scientific basis, even though clearly it's against established fact, not theory. There's a fact that they're denying. There have been people who have written about Peter Zuzberg. They have referred to him as an extreme narcissist, just completely self-indulged. I think that there's some accuracy to that. There's no question that he enjoys attention. I spent a couple days at a conference that he held on cancer. I was able to watch him interact with people, and he's a very intellectually alive human being, but it's all very self-directed. He questions what people are saying. He really challenges what, what people are thinking, but it's all directed back at himself for, with, with his ideas and what he has to say. You can have an entire room basically yell at him. It isn't that way. Yes, there is a genetic basis for cervical cancer, and he basically brushes them off. So it's all very self-indulging, which is narcissistic, but he's a complicated character because there's actually, I think, much more to it than that. I think he's an angry man. I think he's bitter. He really does feel that he's been done wrong. He is definitely a believer in conspiracies against him. He talks a lot about peer review being completely biased in science, that, that the research community is all corrupt because of money from the government and money from pharmaceutical companies and that there's a dishonesty in all of this. He's a victim of all of this. How did he get so many followers in terms of journalists, uh, Celia Farber, David Crow? What is it that he's inspired in them? His books seem incomprehensible. Again, I think there's multiple factors at play here. Well, one thing about Duisburg is that he's a very engaging human being. Another following comes from people that have known him and worked with him at Berkeley. A lot of the AIDS denialists that are very active had gone through Berkeley. Another is his German heritage. Uh, there is a huge following for him from people from Germany and German-Americans. There seems to be this nationalistic kind of pride because there's an enormous number of denialists that are German, German-Americans, and that, and that seems to be the only explanation for that. And Duisburg identifies himself as an American, but he spends every summer back in Germany, and he's got a lot of ties there. Christy Majori, who recently died of AIDS, she was probably the most vocal denialist activist. She was hearing from Peter Duisburg what she wanted to hear, that she tested HIV positive, and it didn't mean anything, that her baby died, but couldn't have died of AIDS because 
AIDS isn't caused by HIV and it's not a virus that she has and all that crazy convoluted stuff that she was believing and saying protected her. It's pretty easy to understand why. It's really hard to accept that you have this virus. It's really hard to accept that you may have passed this virus on to your child. It's really hard to accept that your child dies. And so he provided what she wanted. And that's what a lot of people are getting from the denialists, is they're hearing what everyone wants to hear. Don't you want to know that HIV is a myth? Don't you wish that it didn't cause disease? Don't you wish that people didn't have to take antiretrovirals? Who wouldn't want that? So you think Duisburg fills the psychological need that people have to deny a scary reality? I do. And I say that because of my interactions with him. It's hard to believe, but I do believe it. I think that it's psychologically based. I think that he's entrenched in his beliefs to the point where they completely distort what he should be able to objectively see as reality. We see it in the few times in the last few years that he has done presentations on AIDS. I haven't been there, but he posts his slides and the presentations on the Internet for anyone to see. And it's very clear what he's doing. He's picking and choosing research findings to suit his needs, violating every principle of science in doing so to make his point. It's really all about making his point. I really believe that he believes he's doing the right thing. Is he the leader of this movement, the intellectual leader? Yeah, it's fair to say that he's certainly the most credible scientist that has signed on to AIDS denialism. Most every other scientist that has signed on is easily rebuked as a quack or a fluke or a fringe or a pseudoscientist. But he is difficult to do that with because of his early career accomplishments. The other one that's difficult to do that with is Kerry Mullis. Kerry Mullis won the Nobel Prize for inventing the PCR test. He's easier to discredit, though, because he admits that while he developed the PCR test, he was taking LSD, and he also swears that he was abducted by aliens. So when he says that HIV can't cause AIDS, his credibility is more easily apparent that it's not very credible. Uh, Peter Duisberg, on the other hand, though, plays a victim. It's much more difficult to call him not credible. What has damaged his credibility is his views on AIDS. Uh, he's not taken seriously in his cancer work because he's an AIDS denialist. Is there an element of being anti-gay in his worldview? In some denialists, it's more apparent than others. Duisburg has a history of saying homophobic things. He has a history of saying that not all gays get AIDS. It's only those that are involved in drugs, those guys that are wearing, and this is a quote, leather jackets. He wears a leather jacket in some pictures I've seen of him. But he has a history of referring to gay men as homos. This is all in press, in interviews with him. Others have been even more blatant. There's a professor at Virginia Tech University now who's getting a lot of attention. He wrote in a book of his. I may be old-fashioned, but it's pretty obvious to me that homosexuality is a disease. Uh, he has since apologized for that and says he's in recovery, essentially, as a homophobe. But the homophobic connection to AIDS denialism is another one of those threads. It's not what it's all about, but racism and homophobia are threads that connect some denialists to AIDS denialism. Let's talk about racism then, because one of the most at-risk communities for denialism is the African-American community. 
there are many African Americans who are suspicious of the government, who are suspicious of quote unquote establishment beliefs. There's a small population of infected African Americans who are not taking treatment because they feel it might be unsafe for them. They might read Gary Null or some other person who knows nothing about HIV, and, and they do not take meds. You're right. I think particularly African Americans, and, and to a lesser degree, I think uh, Hispanic Americans, but African Americans have a long history in this country of abuse. We could always point to the very infamous Tuskegee syphilis study where the U.S. Public Health Service back in the 30s had enrolled 700 African American men who they knew had syphilis, but there was no treatment at the time. They wanted to just do what's called a natural history study to observe these men develop syphilis and document what happens. That was all fine, but they were followed for something like 30 years. And during that time, treatment for syphilis did become available, and it was withheld from them. And the Tuskegee syphilis study is one of the great blemishes, one of the great shames in in our nation's public health history. One of the ramifications has been an element of of well-deserved mistrust of the public health service in African-American communities, and there are other examples as well. These are the things in history that can fuel conspiracy thinking. It's like a kernel of truth that gets blown into things that just aren't relevant anymore, but there is a history there. And so there is a susceptibility to mistrust of the medical establishment. And when that exists, it opens the door to the flakes and the flukes and the pseudoscientists and the quacks. We see elements of racism in what the denialists are saying. Some of it is more blatant than others. I'll return again now to this professor who's at Virginia Tech University who has this history of homophobia. He also says that essentially why people test HIV positive has nothing to do with a virus. It has to do with their immune systems. The test is picking up on immunities. Because they come from Africa, where there are a lot of infectious diseases, African Americans have different immune systems and more different immunities that throw the test off. And that's what explains all these African Americans that are testing HIV positive. Then they're given the antiretroviral drugs, and that's what causes AIDS. What kind of professor is this guy? He is right now one of the most visible and vocal AIDS denialists on the Internet. He wrote a book that he says indisputably proves that HIV cannot cause AIDS. In this book, he goes through a very convoluted, torturous gymnastics around the uh, HIV... AIDS epidemiology, the the science of the disease. It's pretty crazy-making. He is a professor of science at Virginia Tech University. He's actually a professor emeritus of science. His name is Henry Bauer. He's not a biologist. He's never done any research himself. You don't have to look too carefully to see that he's also one of the world's authorities on the Loch Ness Monster. I'm not kidding. He was the editor of a journal that's called the Journal of Scientific Exploration. He was the president of the Society of Scientific Exploration, which is the main body of uh, researchers who study UFOs, alien abductions, psychic auras, magnetic healing. It's a pseudoscience group. So there's no question that Henry Bauer is a pseudoscientist. His 
attraction to AIDS and his now being entrenched in, in AIDS is what has become destructive. No one ever would have heard of Henry Bauer before. And that is why he's doing what he's doing. Suddenly he's getting a lot of attention. He's found a niche for himself. And he's actually pretty destructive because he's got a significant online presence. So the internet is what has changed denialism in the past 20 years. Before, if Duesberg wrote his books, people might have bought a few copies. But now, if you go to Amazon, where Duesberg's books are sold, and you look at the reviews, the majority of the reviews are positive, five stars. They're all reviewed by people like Henry Bauer and Christine Major and Celia Farber. So it's changed everything. If I was just a random person, I would think, wow, Duesberg is a very important person in HIV. I, I should take his view in consideration, just like my HIV specialist and just like my case manager at an AIDS organization. And it's put everyone on an even plane. That's exactly right. It's the combination of the amount of information that they have put on the Internet and the accessibility of the Internet to everyone. Our research group had done research on the digital divide in AIDS care about a decade ago. And there was a digital divide among people with HIV infection. Some were using the Internet, some were not. African Americans were less likely than, than Caucasians. That's all gone now. All of our participants in our research in Atlanta are online. Everyone has access. If not at home, then at a friend's. If not at a friend's, and a sister's. If not a sister's, in the Internet Cafe. It's extremely unusual for us to find a person with HIV infection who doesn't have access to the Internet. That's a great thing. People are meeting other people. They're getting support. They're getting good information. They're finding out about clinical trials. And they're coming across rethinking AIDS. And they're coming across alive and well. And they're coming across heal. And that's the problem. We know that people, when they are diagnosed or considering getting screened for a serious health problem, they turn to the Internet. Right. When they go to these sites, they read convoluted discussions that HIV doesn't cause AIDS and Koch's law and all this other crap that they don't have any idea what they're talking about. And they just think it's over my head. It's, but they're probably very smart people, so maybe I, right. I should listen to them. That's right. They're not just providing information. That's not what the denialists are doing. They're recruiting. So their information is packaged in a much more user-friendly, well-networked among each other, even when they are conflicting with each other, they don't conflict. There's one group in Australia, the Perth group, they say HIV doesn't even exist. Duisburg says HIV does exist, it's just harmless. But they don't really fight with each other online a lot. Apparently they've had some conflict, but it's not apparent. It's not like they're debating with each other at all. What they're doing is recruiting the susceptible person, the young person, the person with HIV, the family member, they're recruiting. Their whole approach to using the Internet is really different. Really smart people can easily be fooled by this. I spent two years of my life enmeshed in this. I spent a lot of time online. I corresponded a lot with the leading denialists. As a journalist would, I had to use a different identity because I'm, of course, a part of the establishment. So I went undercover and essentially infiltrated. I got to know a lot of these guys pretty well. I can tell you that it's easy to be fooled. I think I have a pretty good working knowledge of AIDS. It's all I've done for my entire career. Some of my best friends are the world's leading AIDS scientists. And there were times when I went, i got to check that out. 
that sounds just too good to not be true. I would go to my fact checkers, who are some of the leading scientists in AIDS, and say, is, is this right? And they would say, no, that's completely wrong. <laughs> I was being skeptical. I was really studying them. For someone who just sort of happens upon them, it's really a, a no question, no question that people could easily be fooled and are being fooled. Yeah, but don't you think that the one easy way not to be fooled is to stick to the question, is HIV a dangerous disease? One of the key take-home messages for me has everything to do with credibility, which is not the same as credentials. So a lot of the denialists have the credentials. Some don't. Often they will misrepresent their credentials. So you have people who have never had an academic job saying that they're professors, and they're not. You've got people who are journalists who sure are sounding a lot like scientists, but they have nothing further than a bachelor's degree. And so you can judge people's credibility on many dimensions. Credentials isn't the best one. You have to really look towards what have they done that is established as fact. The good news is that on the Internet, there are just as many places to do fact-checking as there are to find quackery. So, for example, one place is just to go to the National Library of Medicine website. It's called PubMed. You can plug in a researcher's name and search and see what they have done. Has Henry Bauer ever published a paper on AIDS? No. Has he ever published a paper? Well, no. (laughs) You can see that David Rasnick, who is a proclaimed expert in Developing proteus inhibitor drugs is what they call him and what he calls himself. Well, you can see that he's published papers on protease in rats studying arthritis. You can use the power of the Internet to check people out. But you have to know where to look, and you have to be able to know what's credible and what's not credible. But I think the problem is that there's this conspiracy theory that these people might be better scientists then they are acknowledged because they have alternative point of views. No one gives them their chance. That's right. This is where we all come in. When we have a friend or a brother or a sister who is talking about conspiracies and saying HIV is harmless, that what's being done here is a big hoax to make money for the pharmaceutical companies, and we've got you know Bill Clinton and Bono conspiring to sell more of those drugs that are really killing Africans. When you hear people saying that stuff, we can't just think it's cute and funny. We have to really challenge them. We have to say, where do you get that from? And treat it as a mental health problem. We can't be thinking that conspiracy thinkers are just sort of cute and funny. We have to be able to tell our friends and our brothers and our sisters that what they're saying isn't grounded in reality. If we look at Christine Major, she was living with HIV a long, long time and was probably a long-term non-progressor. She eventually progressed, but she didn't know that there were studies going on on people who seemed to be able to survive a very long time with HIV and not take meds. She wasn't aware of this, nor are a lot of people aware of that there are these people that exist that don't need to take meds. And some eventually need to take meds. They're just slow progressors. They don't know. Some people take 10 years to show a symptom, and some people take 15 years, and some people take three years. There's, there's this natural variation. They're just not aware of it. Denialists have been using that people aren't informed to say that, oh, look, Christine didn't have to take medication. 
all those years. That's right. Christine, she's 52, living in a suburb of L.A., dead of pneumonia. Very unusual if you don't have an immune disorder. Her daughter dies at three. They say it's an antibiotic reaction. Very unusual in a L.A. suburb. So two incredibly unusual things happening in one family. They're, both, they're saying, oh, no, it can't be HIV. It's, you're a psychologist. What's up that you could deny what just happened to your family? What's that like for her loved yeah. ones and for her group? Is her group still alive? Yeah. Well, it's the nature of denial. And the nature of denialism, when any of us face a traumatic experience, denial is a psychological reaction that is universal. It just usually doesn't last very long. When denial lasts a long time, it becomes what psychiatrists call malignant denial. People who feel a lump in their belly and ignore it, denial can last a very long time. And what happens, of course, is it just gets worse. But there are people who will ignore a tumor until it kills them. There are cases of women who ignore their pregnancy until they deliver. That's a malignant kind of denial. It becomes denialism when people start to propagate their views and search for information to support their views, to put themselves in a bubble, to protect themselves from the reality that they just can't face. With Christine Majori, it's pretty clear to me that she created a world that protected her from the truth. She just couldn't handle the truth. And it's actually very sad. She ignored her HIV-positive diagnosis by listening to people like Peter Duesberg and the people around him. She ended up having a baby that died at the age of three. The L.A. coroner ruled this death a uh, death of AIDS. She sued the coroner's office and had a rebuttal autopsy, essentially, which was actually just a review of the records by a denialist who's got a degree in veterinary sciences from University of Baghdad. She really did surround herself with people that were just really true believers. Now, Christine Majori herself, of course, dies. What does she die of? She dies of pneumonia, which is extraordinarily rare in a person with a healthy immune system. We then come to find out that she had disseminated herpes, her death certificate shows that she indisputably died of AIDS. What do the people that surrounded herself say? You would think that they would say, we've been wrong. My God, we've been wrong. That's not possible. It's not possible, or they wouldn't be denialists. So what they're doing is they're constructing a different reality, and you can see this yourself if you want to. There's a website called AIDS Myth Exposed. It's a, a news group in the MS network. And so AIDS Myth Exposed, you'll find several different news groups that have very active postings. What they're saying is that Christine Majori died of stress. Her immune system had collapsed. That's obvious. They don't dispute that. But what caused the collapse was stress. And the thing that really pushed her over the edge was the Law and Order episode. Many people may have seen this, some may not have. But on October 28th, NBC aired a Law and Order episode called Retro. It's a Law and Order SVU, the Special Victims Unit Law and Order version. They did an episode on Christine Majori's life. I mean, it was very obvious. I mean, it was more than apparent that they were portraying, you know, one of those ripped-from-the-headlines kind of episodes. What her friends say and her followers and her believers say is that that's what did her in. She should have never watched it. 
it was far too stressful for her to try to deal with the oxidation processes that were caused by the stress. She had a detox done where she went through some kind of ritual procedure to cleanse her of this, and that's what ultimately killed her. I don't know what the medical possibility of a healthy 52-year-old in a suburb dying of stress. Well, it doesn't matter what you think. That's what happened. Their reality is such that we're going to trust the medical establishment. That's all corrupted. They wanted her to obviously take pills. They've constructed a reality that's impenetrable by facts, and that is the nature of denialism. It's why you never want to debate with a denialist. You can't win. Let's get at the kernel of truth that denialism works off of. It works off of everyone's suspicion of established things and everybody's suspicion of authority. We all know that the medical profession could be better about prevention. That little kernel of truth ends up connecting to this wider other thing, right? That's right. Could you talk a little bit about the little kernel of truth that starts this fire? It's not just in conspiracy theorizing, conspiracy thinking. It is in denialism that you do see people kind of grabbing on to a thread or a kernel of truth. It is true that stress does run down our immune systems, but it doesn't cause AIDS. It is true that illicit drug abuse isn't good for us and that it runs down our immune systems, but it doesn't destroy T cells. It's not specific. So there is this truth that becomes distorted in denialism. It's the kind of thing where we can all say, well, I see where that's coming from. Yeah, stress is bad for you, and stress can give you a heart attack. I see that. Antiretrovirals, AZT, have side effects that doctors talk about toxicity. That's true. So there's a reasonable, rational base there. What happens in denialism just like in conspiracy theorizing, it becomes distorted and way disproportionate to reality. From a psychological perspective, what's kind of interesting about it is not everybody is prone to that thinking. Not everybody crosses that line. What is the difference between someone who goes over the line and someone who doesn't? It's one of the great mysteries of human beings is that we're all just so different. Could you talk a little bit about some of the people who are financing AIDS denialism? Who are these people, and why would they finance such a thing? That's the question that a lot of people are asking, that there aren't a lot of answers to. It does cost money to do some of these things. Uh, Rethinking AIDS has employed a publicist. They travel. There's money that's involved in some of these things. It doesn't cost any money to set up a website. I did it over Christmas break. It takes time to maintain a website. You don't see a lot of young, productive people at the high end of of AIDS nihilism. You you see them blogging, but a lot of the people that are most visible are pretty old. A lot of them are retired academic emeritus. You don't see non-tenured faculty at universities too involved in this. And when you do, they're not there for very long. Where is the money coming from? It's pretty clear that there are people that make donations. The Alberta Reappraising AIDS Society website and at Rethinking AIDS, you can donate. How much anyone donates, nobody knows. I have no idea. We know that there's been venture capitalists, particularly with political bents, interestingly enough, from the Libertarian Party, who have financed some things. For example, we know that there's a venture capitalist in San Francisco who co-produced Christine Majori's movie, 
her husband, Robin Scoville, produced a movie about basically her story. They produced essentially a major motion picture. This venture capitalist, Robert Lepo, financed it. That's public knowledge. We all know that because it's on there. But it's also true that he is financing Peter Duesberg's cancer lab. Now, how do we know that? Well, because it's well disclosed in the program for Peter Duesberg's cancer conference that I went to, and he was there. So it's very well known. This didn't require any undercover investigative to find this out. So there is money that is flowing through venture capitalists who have bought into this, who see maybe a way to make some money by selling perhaps herbal remedies, by selling products in place of antiretrovirals, by selling books that are published by fringe publishers. Venture capitalists, by definition, want to make money. They don't just want to give money away. So they're sort of betting on things. But that's all I know. I only know that because it's in the public domain. You don't have to look very far to find this. Uh, Another thing that's happening in terms of money is the denialists are very involved in undermining charities, particularly the Red Campaign. They're very active in trying to get people to not buy Red products, the Red products being Bono's venture that involves the gap, et cetera, you buy products and part of the money goes to the Global Fund Against AIDS and, and malaria and TB. And the other thing that they're very involved in right now are lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies. They're trying to get families where post-exposure prophylaxis has occurred, where someone was exposed to HIV and doctors deliver antiretrovirals to try to prevent the infection from happening. They're very involved in suing those hospitals and pharmaceutical companies for exposing people to toxic drugs to prevent an infection that no one can prove would even happen. They haven't won any that I know of, but among them, there are lawyers who are dedicating time to doing this. The testimony is provided by these world-renowned scientists like Peter Duesberg and David Rasnick. The good news is, as far as I can tell, they haven't gotten any traction. I'm not even aware of cases being settled, but I know that there are still cases pending. They're also pretty involved in creating defenses for people that are prosecuted for exposing people to HIV, saying that they're exposing people to HIV is harmless because there's no proof that HIV even causes AIDS. They're serving as expert witnesses in these cases, so there's money involved there. There was a case like that in Australia that they lost. That's right. The Berenzi's case, it was the most celebrated case, and American scientists flew out to Australia to rebut the denialist testimonies, particularly the Perth group was very involved out there. But you have the whole array of denialists testifying on Perenzi's behalf, and then you had some of the world's greatest aid scientists rebutting them. The good news was the judge didn't accept most of the denialists as legitimate authorities, as legitimate scientists, and uh, didn't accept their testimony. The bad news is they're distracting, they're spending a lot of uh, people's time They're wasting a lot of our resources. They're distracting a lot of scientists from their work. They're doing a lot of damage. The good news is they aren't making great traction in places where it could count. They've been trying to persuade Congress. They've targeted specific congressmen and women. They've been trying to gain their attention and their time. They've done a lot of damage, but the good news is they don't have the credibility to really take a big leap. A lot of people are aware that they were successful in stopping antiretroviral clinical trials with children in New York City. That's probably one of the most destructive things that they've actually been able to achieve in a long time. 
So I don't want to say that they're not doing damage, that no one's paying attention to them. It's not true. But in terms of big policy issues and infiltrating the criminal justice system and having cases overturned, they haven't made that traction yet. Let's talk about pharmaceutical company money. Do you get money from pharmaceutical companies to write the book and to speak about this issue? I disclose all of my potential involvement in conspiracies in the very front. I've never had any funding from pharmaceutical companies, but I do accept pens and notepads when I go to conferences from them. I've never been funded by the Gates Foundation, but I do use Microsoft products. I am funded by the National Institutes of Health. All of my research is funded by the NIH, National Institutes of Health, and I suspect that makes me corrupt. Pharmaceutical companies have no involvement in anything that I do. I've never taken money from them. And the really cool thing about denying AIDS is that uh, all of the royalties are being donated to buy antiretroviral therapies in Africa. There's an organization called the Family Treatment Fund, and uh, they will get all of the royalties for the book. Let's talk about the people who are making the decisions and really aren't able to make it from an educated point of view. I knew a young man who really couldn't understand the discussion about HIV. He decided to listen to Gary Knoll, who's a vitamin salesman in New York. Gary Knoll has a book about AIDS and uh, a movie, and he says that you shouldn't take the medications. It's, they're toxic. So he stopped the medications, and he started seeing a healer for $60 a week who would lay hands on him, and within two years, he was dead. What do we do about people like that who can't make heads or tails but all this noise and all this argument? You know, I'm very familiar with Gary Null. This book is actually impossible to read. It's not written in a known language. It's what psychiatrists would call word salad. If you took a bunch of words and you put them in a blender and poured them on a page, it's an unreadable book. And that's what makes it so criminal because it's completely uninterpretable and looks scientific and really persuades people to purchase his drugs, fans, shoes, and foods. There aren't a whole lot of people in this profiting off of this, and he's one. It's pretty destructive. He's another one of these charismatic, convincing people. So how do we take better care of the people that these guys, particularly people like Gary Null, get their hooks into? The best thing we can do is be supportive of them and to tell them, that there's a lot of information and try to direct them to good information to try to balance it out. I think fighting with people and arguing with them, debating and going back and forth is not productive. When they've really gotten involved in the denialism and they go to Rethinking AIDS and they've read Henry Bauer's book, which is almost readable, when they've read Celia Farber's articles, when someone has really gotten into this, it's extremely easy to argue and debate and it'll just never get you anywhere. The best thing to do is to say that that's a perspective. If they're really serious about rethinking, if they're really serious about being critical and not just accepting what's being spoon-fed to them from the medical establishment and the orthodoxy, they shouldn't be doing that with you know, alive and well either. And so to try to present to them alternatives to broaden their thinking and to have a conversation, not a debate, about all perspectives. What we would really like is for someone to go to a doctor, not to give up their acupuncturist and their homeopathy, but to go to a doctor as well, to think about complementary treatment as well as alternative treatment. That's what I think is most helpful. We would like for people to 
be proactive. We'd like for them to take antiretrovirals. But for a lot of people, it's just not going to happen. What Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says about denial is sometimes you just have to be there for people, be able to be supportive of them when they are shaken from their denial. And sometimes that's just the best that we can do. You have an amazing quote at the beginning of Denying AIDS. It's from a Zambian AIDS activist and former denialist. It's from Winston Zulu. He says, what mattered to me as a person living with HIV was to be told that HIV did not cause AIDS. That was nice. Of course, it was like printing money when the economy is not doing well or pissing in your pants when the weather is too cold. Comforting for a while, but disastrous in the long run. Yeah, I, I think it really says it all. I have an author's blog for the book, and I put it at the top. Whenever I go to the blog, I think I could use that space for something different, but I won't remove it. I think it just says it all. He was on President Mbeki's infamous 2000 AIDS panel as a consumer. He really was a denialist. He was a very vocal activist in Africa. He got really sick. He got a number of fungal infections, and it sort of shook him. And he said, what the hell am I doing? People are saying there's medications that can help me. This is going to kill me. Shaken, he completely reversed course, and now he's one of the great vocal advocates for expanding HIV treatments in Africa. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's a great quote. I think it says it all. Yeah, so this is great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. This is such a huge subject, and there's so much to talk about. Hopefully people will get inspired to buy your book, to look at your website, to go to AIDSTruth.org and find out more about this. Thank you so much. Thank you. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. You've reached the end of this month in HIV's program. To read the transcript or let us know what you think of this program, please visit www.thebody.com/hivmonth. slash HIV month.